0: Well, we're going to be finishing 1 Peter this morning. I hope that you're not too sad. Uh, I was actually a little a little bummed out uh, ending this book. Uh, Pastor McKinney and I kind of have a running joke in the office how every time we do a book, we say this is like the best book we've ever done, um, but we realize that it's always the best book we've ever done because the Bible has 66 books that are all the best books that have ever been written, and so um, we're thankful that we've been doing 1 Peter. Hope it's been encouraging for you. We're going to land the plane today, tie up all the loose ends, and finish Finish what Peter wants to say to us uh, and to these churches in Asia Minor. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into chapter 5 verse 6. Lord, thank you that we got to, uh, that we get to have the scriptures, and that we get to look at books like 1 Peter. Thank you for this letter that was written, that was inspired by your Holy Spirit to encourage us, exhort us, challenge us, and conform us more to the image of Jesus uh, we pray that every time we teach and preach through books of the Bible, that it would not just simply be information, but it would truly continually lead to transformation and fruit that lasts. We pray that we would be a different people um, this week and next month and next year and in future years because we've walked through this letter. Uh, we pray you'd help us this morning in ways that we need help for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First Peter chapter 5. We're going to finish First Peter um, today, Then we're going to roll into 2 Peter, uh, which is going to be a wonderful letter to walk with you through. That'll take us till May, and then we've got a, something I'm very excited about uh, walking through with you this summer that I won't tell you now, and I'll tell you when we hit June, all right, to let you linger. But here's uh, 1 Peter 5. If you're here visiting, you brought by a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, glad you're here. We just love to worship Jesus, which is what the scriptures speak to. And so uh, every letter we teach, every book of the Bible we teach and preach, we want you to see Jesus and see that he's the center of the story and he's the reason by which everything else is written so you can see him more clearly and understand why he's the meaning to everything that exists. And so we want you to know him, love him, and worship him. So we worship him by singing, worship him by sitting under teaching, worship him by enjoying the Lord's Supper each week, which reminds us that he did the work for us that we could not accomplish in our own selves, that he is righteous, we are not, he is sinless, we are sinful, and he came and paid the debt, rose from death, and validated that and offers his spirit to all who would trust in his name and forgiveness of sin. And so um, we love that. That's how, why we worship him. We worship him by being generous and giving because he was generous. And we always encourage you not to give if you're not a regular, a member, or a tender because uh, we want you to know that Jesus can't be bought. Jesus purchases you. Uh, and so we pray that you would know that this morning. We're in 1 Peter 5. It's a book of the Bible. We love to teach through books because we believe it keeps us honest with the scriptures, allows us to tackle subjects we might not otherwise tackle we're finishing first peter and if this is your first Sunday here, hearing this, First Peter basically wrote to these people who were uh, out of the early church. There was lots of persecution, lots of opposition, lots of adversity, mockery, rejection for believing in Jesus. And uh, Jesus has had ascended and gifted His Holy Spirit. People were trusting in Christ, believe He could forgive sin, believe He could transform their life, believe He could actually offer eternal life with God the Father. And as they're doing this, uh, people don't like that. Culture doesn't like that. Government doesn't like that. It's it's, uh, they're seen as uh, outsiders and outcasts, and so Peter's writing saying, hey, we are distinct from culture, but we're not to be disengaged from culture, and he has written this letter to help us understand how do we live as what's called an elect exile. Elect exiles are simply those who are in the world, not of the world. Those who are chosen by God, saved by God, yet, right, we still live in the already not yet, and how do we live as exiles still belonging to Jesus, and it's been so encouraging And um, here, he's just going to basically give his summary purpose, and we're going to jump into verse 6 of chapter 5. Here's what Peter writes. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares For you. So, um, Peter's wrapping up this beautiful letter, and if you've been with us, you've seen all of this, and he wants us to remember that suffering for Jesus and being rejected for Jesus takes humility. It takes humility. Um, The proud don't suffer well, right? The humble suffer well Um, in any type of suffering, but especially when it comes to suffering for Jesus. He knows we will have questions. He knows we will ask why me, why now, why this? And he knows we're gonna need to humble ourselves underneath God and say, God, I might not understand this, but I trust you, I know you're with me. God, I don't understand why this is so hard. I don't understand why I'm I'm pursuing you and loving you, yet life circumstances seem to get worse. It seems that that the more that I give my life to you, that the harder earthly things become. Um, Let me lean into you, remind me of these things, remind me that you're God, but Peter knows something beautiful and powerful amidst all that. Um, Peter understands that um, he just finished saying last week, if you're with us, that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you're here for that, you remember that. It's how we ended last week's text. And so we said as a family, hey, we agree. We don't want God opposed to this place. We'd love to be a family by which God gives grace, right? I've never met anyone who says, I don't want that. I want God opposed to me, right? If there's one thing you do not want opposed to you, it's the God of the universe, right and so here's what he's saying is he's saying humility humbling yourself underneath god not only helps you avoid divine opposition but allows you to receive divine grace so we actually have divine grace that allows him to help us in our time of need of questions of uncertainty of struggle of suffering so we humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God, knowing that God is the one who's in charge, that God sees all, that God knows all, that God cares for you, and that we can trust him. But don't miss that one little phrase, whoops, I don't have it highlighted, at the proper time, he may exalt you. now. Him exalting you, that word does not, does not mean that he makes you better than him. Um, don't, don't think Christianity means cool, he makes me awesome, right? You're not awesome, that's why you needed him. He's awesome, and he wants to conform you more into the awesomeness of his son, Jesus Christ. So that word exalting more speaks to to be delivered from. That's what that means. At the proper time, he'll liberate you, free you. Now, presently, he can do that. We know finally in the eschaton, in the consummation, in the new heavens, new earth, he will fully do that. But in this present time, we know at the proper time, he may deliver us from either the ways we see and feel about suffering or the suffering itself. But it's always at the proper time. Time. Remember, these people are being opposed, rejected, mocked, and Peter has continued to encourage them to follow Jesus, trust Jesus, love Jesus, and Peter knows as we walk with Jesus, we will hit times of frustration and suffering, and we will wonder, why does this not work? And we want deliverance the same day we ask for it. Right? Well, I don't understand. I bless those who cursed me, it didn't work, right? I mean, I gave a response for the hope that's within me with gentleness and respect, it didn't work. I, I prayed, and it didn't work. I went to church, it didn't work. I, was, I lived as God calls me, lived with my spouse, it didn't work. Did it not work, or is it not the proper time? Um, it always works, it's just not working yet, amen? And, and that's what he wants us to understand. We, we even humble ourselves. Well, I'm trying to live humbly, it's not working well that reveals your prideful so you got to get back to humility first but but as you walk humbly serving trusting Jesus it just might not be the proper time and that's important for us to remember um, do we not live in a world that is not it, 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 our world is built upon no such thing as delayed gratification right A reward right we we have no mental concept for that right? You're at work, and if your email does not fly into the abyss, hit the satellite in space, and get back to that neighbor who's in Afghanistan, within three milliseconds, you're angry, right? And we're like, wow, we didn't realize it took that long to do all that. We, we have no, no, no concept of that. If our spouse does not immediately change their actions and act the way we want today, we get frustrated, Right? Um, if we don't see that money in the bank account immediately, we get frustrated. If we don't drive through that window and the coffee's not hot in our hands, scolding our throats in three seconds, we get angry, right? This, we have no concept of this, and yet Peter shows us, man, living the Christian life, um, that's not the framework. The framework is really we follow Jesus steadily, we wait patiently, and we harvest eventually. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be a Christian. So what God is doing here through Peter is telling us we trust him in suffering, trust him in hardship, trust him we're rejected for the name and renown and love of Jesus. We're around people who do not love the God that we love and do not serve the God that we serve. Um, We trust him. We follow him because God is less concerned with you avoiding pain in your life and more concerned with you being conformed to his image. And so that's why God knows, I'm not going to tell you when you're going to be alleviated from this, otherwise the goal would be that date and not being with me, right? So, so the goal of God is you being with him, you loving him, you seeing his glory in the midst of what you walk in, and that transforms you. You keep going transforms you. And that's what Peter understands, and that's what God wants for us, which is why he says, as you experience trial and persecution, living as an elect's exile, you're going to have anxious moments. And we have anxious moments, cast those anxieties onto him. You want to know why? Because that worry is an indication of pride that says, I don't have a God who can care for me. I don't have a God I can trust. And so that's how he's tying this humility and worry and anxiety and casting these things onto him. You can cast them onto the one who understands, who knows, who's in full authority. I mean, who do you want to go to when you have a problem, like a, a, an earthly, worldly problem? You want to go to the specialist, right? I want to go to the one who can get it done, the one I trust, right? If you've got a serious illness, you want to go to the doctor that knows the illness and knows how to treat it. In the same way, we can cast our anxieties to the great physician, the God of all comfort, the God of the universe who knows, who sees not only the span of your life, but afterlife, who is not only in time, but outside of time, waiting and welcoming you into those moments. So he says, cast your anxieties onto him, and that takes humility, not pride. And then he says in verse eight, so we're sober-minded, we're watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist and firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we cultivate a humility that trusts God while being watchful because we know the enemy wants to take discouragements, discontentments, um, disappointments, and he wants to use them against God, not for God. So, so one of the primary ways the enemy loves to get into your psyche is when you're suffering, and when things aren't going well, and when you think God is not for you, but opposed to you, when you think God's abandoned you and isn't near to you. Like he would love to sow seeds of doubt, sow seeds of discontentment, sow seeds of disappointment. So seeds of disillusionment, right? He knows that the enemy would love to do that, and so he reminds us, first, hey, there are other brothers and sisters around the whole world that are experiencing this. I love this, just the encouragement that you're in good company, that that no one who follows Jesus will not experience suffering or reviling or rejection for Jesus in some way, shape, or form. But, But what I want you to see is he connects humility and watchfulness of the spiritual war. Now, the reason he connects these two is because... Peter knows an obstacle to you being watchful of that is your pride. <laughs> he knows your inability to see there's a third party, not just human institutions, and a spiritual realms, spiritual adversaries is your pride. That's why we're blinded. That's why we're not watchful. It's not because we don't even know it. It's because we're prideful. I can handle him. I can handle that, right? Right? And so just as some of you are new to this, you're wondering, man, whoa, whoa, devil prowls around, roaring lion. Uh, what happens really quickly in, in the beginning of time is, is there is God and his angels. There's a lead angel, Lucifer, who's Satan, called a number of names. And um, he sees that God has glory, sees that God has power. He, he wants that glory for himself, wants that power for himself. So he, he devises a plan to deceive a third of the angels. He, he does that. We don't really understand how all that gets accomplished. But what we do know, the scripture says that a war breaks out in heaven here here's what that war means Uh, God's omniscient God hasn't left his throne it doesn't mean God's like oh no what do I do shoot didn't see this coming Uh, God says you're gone and says the third of you are going to be tormented in hell forever I'm casting you there right but in the created realm until that final judgment right they're here wanting to lead deceive destroy God's work and God's family we don't know how many there are. If you follow text and Revelation and the Gospels, you'll see that there are myriads of angels, which are millions upon millions, so a third of those is like millions. Now, what, what we don't believe here is that there's like a demon in every bush, okay? We're not like, listen, if you're going to growth group and, and you get a flat tire, first thing you think is not, where's the demon? You check for a nail, okay? So we... we we do not believe demonic activity happens because we're morons, all right? So don't blame everything on that, but we believe there's a significant aspect by which he's active. We don't believe that there's a demon in every TV, or there's a demon in every internet device. We do believe, though, he loves to use those neutral things, and because we're not morally neutral, we're sinful. Right? He'll use things and he'll use the mind and temptations to go after God's work and God's family, to undermine our witness, to undermine our churches. And so um, we lack watchfulness because we don't really believe that that's true. Um, we believe we can do this. We're overcomers, um, which is why he knows a main arsenal in resisting him, firming your faith, is prayer. Prayer. Now, we don't have time for this, but the reason this is big in your arsenal is because if you remember, Peter writing this is with Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He says, hey, the devil asked me if he could scrutinize you. I gave him permission, but don't worry. I prayed for you, Peter. Right? So, so Peter locks that in his memory bank, going, okay, so God is authority over all things. He gave permission to the devil to, to scrutinize me. But what was the main comfort for Peter? That Jesus prayed for him. And so watchfulness and prayerfulness are necessarily together, right? The spiritual realm. That's why this Wednesday we'll have corporate prayer. We want to pray together as to the people of God the last Wednesday of the month, asking him to protect us, him to preserve us, him to empower us by his presence and enablement of the Holy Spirit, right? We appeal to God, right? We don't appeal to ourselves. If you're new to Christianity, we don't appeal to ourselves for help, for strength. We appeal to God outside of ourselves for help and strength. That's the Christian life that's living by the gospel, that's living by his grace. We don't live by our own efforts and merit and, and abilities. We live by his merits, his efforts, and his abilities through us, right? That's, that's how we overcome temptation, sin, and even the enemy, and so I'd argue because there is no watchfulness of this reality of the spiritual realm, the reason we're not prayerful is because we're prideful, which means we think it's always peacetime, right? Um, but man, I mean, when do you pray most? When you're at war. When do you plead? When you're at war. I mean, how, how hard are the parents praying for their children on the front lines in the Middle East? Do, do you think that's on their minds? Do you think they're concerned about that? We think it's not peacetime. We don't think that this exists. When it's wartime, you pray. And so um, when there's a clear knowledge that you're at war, Peter wants to remind us of that. It's not just you not reviling those who revile you. It's not just you giving an answer for the hope that you have. It's not just, hey, you belong to Jesus, chapter one. It's not just all this, you're going to suffer for his namesake. It's, hey, there's a third party and all that. So just be careful what you believe and what you're trusting in and what you're not praying against, that God would help bring those things to the forefront. Then he says this in verse 10, then after you have suffered a little while, we've been discussing this throughout the whole letter, that suffering comes, it's inevitable, we've talked about how to deal with that. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will he himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is fundamentally what it means to be an elect exile. This is fundamentally what it means to be in Christ and Christ to be in you. And all Peter's speaking to is your identity and it being secure. He wants you to know that despite everything else he's just laid before you in those five chapters, that your identity is secure. He knows your freedom's not secure. He knows your comfort's not secure. He knows that today's bank account's not secure. He knows your job situation today's not secure, but he knows you are secure in him. That's what he knows. You'll never not belong to Jesus if you're his, and you'll always have a future inheritance and a future home and a future glory. And so Peter's just basically through a summary statement here showing you when we're able to endure suffering because God loves us and we love him, it's a glory, it's a blessing, it's a privilege to suffer for Jesus, it's a privilege to be rejected for Jesus. Why? Because our prayer is that others might receive good, that we might grow, and that God might be glorified because that's the goal of all things. That's why he just says amen. Amen, let it be. That's what we desire as a people, that others might see the character of God through the ways that we live, through the ways that we suffer, through the ways that we're patient, through the ways that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of our God. And then he gives his summary purpose, which is where I want to camp out the rest of our time. Verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ." Um, Peter ends this letter. He's tying up all the loose ends. Sylvanus is, is just Peter's secretary. He helped write this letter and deliver deliver this letter for him. Um, if you read Paul's second missionary during Acts 15, he was there following along as well. Um, he also mentions the church who's at Babylon. That's just the church in Babylon. Sends greetings. Is likewise chosen. They're elect exiles too. They're everything I've just shared with you. I, I want them to understand too. And they, they know what it's like. They know what you're going through. And then Mark, his spiritual son. He wrote the Gospel of Mark, right? Another inspired gospel in the Bible. Um, He greets you as well. He's just reminding you that there's good company, that community helps strengthen us, that he's been surrounded by people that love Jesus. There are other churches who love Jesus. You're not alone. You're not suffering alone. He's trying to encourage us how faithful God has been through the work and partnership of others, but He summarizes all of it, I would argue, with those four super important words. Stand firm in it. That's his summary to First Peter. If Peter wants you to remember one thing in all that he said, he wants you to remember that. So I just want to end with that. What does it mean, stand firm in it? Well, he just said this is the true grace of God. What's the true grace of God? The gospel. What's the gospel? That Jesus came, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus imparts and empowers his Holy Spirit to all who would gladly trust and submit to his work and name and renown. that They get forgiveness of sin. They get reconciliation with God. It's the good news. It's the good news he kicked off in verse 1 where he listed everything that you are in Christ. So stand firm. In that. Here's the thing stand firm doesn't mean stand still. There's movement. You see this word stand a lot of other places in the Bible. Interesting that he uses it again here to summarize his letter. He's going, man, if you stand in anything, stand in that you belong to Jesus, stand in that you're an elect exile, stand in the true grace of God. That's how you'll endure suffering. That's how you'll be able to not revile those who revile you. That's how you'll be able to open your mouth with the hope within you, with gentleness and respect. This is how you'll be able to remember you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is how you'll be able to be healthy leaders and shepherds and under shepherds. This is how you'll be able to live a humble life, not a prideful life. You must stand firm in the gospel. This is why 2 Peter, which we're going to kick off, which I'm excited about, is that spiritual slap on the pants of, okay, let's go let's stand in this now. Let's stand firm in it. That doesn't mean it's static. That means there's movement. The church is on offense, not defense. So when Peter says, stand firm in the gospel, that's offensive language. That's not defensive language. That's, that's Let's go into enemy territory and take back captives for the name and renown of Jesus. That's what he's saying when he says, let's stand firm in this. He's basically saying, let's go now. Let's go now. This is when the church is starting. I want to turn your attention to a text in 1 Corinthians. I love this verse. I love 1 Corinthians 15, but he uses the same word here. He says, now now, basically, he's just been talking about the gospel. If, if you want to know what Paul writes in his letters, he writes the gospel. That's what he does. And then implications to it. That, that's, that's all you're reading, okay? Let's simplify everything. So here he says, now I would remind you brothers, I love this, he's in the second to last chapter of 1 Corinthians, long letter, church divisions, lots of crazy stuff happening in this church, just wild stuff if you read it. And, and there's what he wants to remind them about is what? <laughs> the one thing we get inoculated about. The gospel, I don't want to hear that again. I don't need to hear that again. I've heard that my whole life, right? When I went to youth camp, that's why I threw my stick in the fire 17 times because I'm hearing the gospel again. No, he's saying, uh, if I want to remind you of something, it's this, and he says, of the gospel I preached to you in which you received, in which you stand. I find that to be amazing. He's reminding them of the gospel, and his concern is not whether they believe it, but whether they're standing in it. So apparently, according to Paul, which is the same thing that Peter cares about, he doesn't just simply care that you're believing something. He cares that you're standing in it, right? Peter doesn't care that you've just heard all he said. He wants you to stand in it. Big difference. Jesus repeatedly goes after simply a mental belief in something, this is why he says, demons have better theology than any pastor he'll preach, and they're going to hell, right? They shudder at me. They don't have saving faith, yet they know doctrine. They know theology. They believe things, right? That's why Jesus says people are gonna come back and be like, man, but I prophesied in your name. He's gonna say, I never knew you. Those are hard texts, Right? Those are difficult texts to hear. So so there's something about standing in the gospel, this amazing gift of Jesus coming and Jesus being your righteousness and taking your sin and paying your debt and rising for you, giving you his life. All this this beautiful exchange that happens in the cross of Jesus Christ through his work, through his power. Are you standing in it or do you simply believe it and there's zero carryover into your life? That's what he's asking. He's asking. That's what Peter's asking us. Everything I just said, is there carryover, or are you just like, thank you for giving me more information? Thank you for telling me that I'll suffer. Thank you for telling me I need to be humble. Thank you for telling me that I'm these things in Jesus. Or is it actually carrying over and transforming your life? Do you believe it, but does it affect how you love your neighbor? Do you believe it, but does it affect how you steward your money? Do you believe it, but does it not affect how you view your work? Do you believe it, but does it not affect how you view suffering? Do you believe it, but does it not affect how you operate as husband and wife? Chapter 3. He could just go on with the list, right? Is this simply mental assent, or is this actually something you believe that carries over to view that you're standing in it? So I want to end with a text from Romans 8. Romans 8. Because I think Romans 8, very simply, Romans 8's amazing. Every chapter in the Bible is amazing. I feel like I've said that for every place we've gone. But, but Romans 8 is really amazing. Okay, so, so Romans 8 is one of those chapters that you could probably read the rest of your life and only stay there. Okay, don't do that. But, but just, I mean, you read it, but don't only stay there. I want you to know the whole Bible. But uh, th- this really kind of helps us understand Peter's charge of standing firm in it. Am I standing firm in my flesh or am I standing firm through the power and help of the Spirit? Look at what Paul says to the church at Rome, Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This verse for me in college changed my life. This was one of the verses in college for me that changed my life (laughs) because I think this shows you a life that is not standing and a life that is standing, a life that is standing firm and a life that is not standing firm. And what does it mean to be religious and what does it mean to be led by a gospel truth? Because here's the thing. Um, He shows us here there's a mind and heart set on the flesh, and there's a mind and heart set on the spirit. There's two kinds of ways, right? It's clear, right in the verse. And then within this, what you have is you can intellectually believe in Jesus, believe in his cross, believe in his resurrection, but still have an independent mind and heart that doesn't believe in Jesus that leads to you being given the spirit and then relying on his spirit relying on the work of the gospel. So you have these two different things you see. And so um, here's the thing. Here's how the mind on the flesh acts. And that this is, I would argue, a person who's not standing firm in it. It's a person who thinks, well, I can overcome. Well, I don't need Jesus. Well, I'll do all these things and just attach his name to it. And I'll believe that I'm a Christian right that's an independent spirit you come in you hear sermons you hear preaching you hear god's word read to you and you leave outside these doors and there's no change your your response is your default is i can do this i can live like this cool i want some of that and it's still all overcome i'll do this your mind and heart is set on you your flesh it's not set on the spirit. This is why so many of us are led to believe in an independent view of struggling with sin. Right? So here's what happens is you, you have this weird suicidal love affair with self-reliance. That's what you have. So you have this like weird, I hear about sin and I get quasi-repentance. And that's your whole Christian life. So you hear a sermon, it tells you, here's certain things, here's what you should do, here's how you should change. You're like, yeah, man, that's in my area of my life. I don't wanna be a liar, I don't wanna be a cheat, I don't wanna deal with greed, I don't wanna be sucked dry through my sexual perversion, I don't want any of these things to happen. So what do you think is, okay, well, well, I'm gonna do this, (laughs) right? It's still you, mind spirit set on the flesh. Okay, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna overcome, I'm gonna change. And if it's a really, really, really good sermon, you can do that for like three weeks. And if it's a bad sermon, you do it for like a few days. And then what happens is, you think Jesus doesn't work or you're just a failure, and it leads you to just disrepair and disappointment until maybe you eventually come back to church, you come back to church eventually, then you're like, all right, and you hear it all over again, and it's the same response. (laughs) I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna overcome. I have a will. (laughs) That's not Christianity. That's not how you stand firm in the gospel. He shows another way, which is huge. He says that leads to death. That leads to no conversion. That leads to no life. That leads to no peace. Set your mind on the Spirit. That leads to life. That leads to conversion. That leads to peace. So there's a difference where the mind on the Spirit stands and says, constantly, I'm dependent on Christ all the time because that's not dependent on you, that's dependent on him. So even when you fall, you realize I need him, I need his help, I need need to engage with Jesus. Standing means are you pursuing, are you surrendering, are you following? That's what it means to stand firm in it, not reverting to self-reliance, but reverting to the power and presence of Christ and what he's given in the Holy Spirit to actually stand in the gospel of grace to keep moving. If you're standing in your efforts to save you, that's why you are constantly, constantly discouraged. The gospel says, the gospel of grace says, Jesus did it, so keep leaning into Jesus. Keep pursuing Jesus. Keep seeing his glory. Keep seeing his work. Keep seeing what he's done for you. And you grab hold of all the means of grace afforded to you in the gospel, the preaching of God's word, the singing of his songs, the giving of his saints, the community of his people. You grab hold of all those things, prayer together, and that begins to transform you. All of those things are relying on him. All those things are pushing you towards relying on the spirit, a mind that's set on, I'm not relying on Mike Reed, I'm relying on Jesus. And that's how we stand firm in it. We know that when all is said and done, our only hope is Jesus. What should I do with my money? I need to engage Jesus. What, what, what do I need to do about this decision? I need to engage Jesus. How do I handle this sin? I need to engage Jesus. You see what I'm saying? You're just engaging Jesus. You're pushing into Jesus. Jesus. You're surrendering to Jesus. Your focus is Jesus. It's not you. It's not your scorecard. It's not your resume. It's Him. And I would argue this is everything in hearing something from Peter that says, okay, stand firm in this, brothers and sisters. What's your initial default? Right, I gotta go back through the letter, figure out how I'm gonna do this, right? Instead of engaging with Jesus. How do I grow in courage in my witness? Like Peter said, I engage with Jesus. I look at him. I look at how he talked, and I, I'm just changed by looking at his character and seeing the ways by which he had courage, and he's the one with me. Okay, I can be courageous. I don't, I don't try to learn best tips. I mean, you can, it's fine. You can add those later, but that ain't the meat, that's not the seed. Jesus is. How do I view suffering and pain and rejection for his name? How do I do that, Peter? I engage with Jesus in the cross. I look at his resurrection. I look at future glory a little bit closer. That's how I do it. I don't rely on me. I don't engage with Mike Reed. I engage with Jesus. I don't know if that makes sense. And this will all relate as living as an exile. I can't be any more serious with you than I'm being right now. Some of you are standing nowhere near the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of you have no idea what it means to stand firm in it. You think standing firm in it, when you read that from Peter, means you stand in you. But he didn't say that. He said, stand firm in the true grace of God. That's the good news of Jesus, what he's done. I love that Peter ends it all reminding you that's the only place you'll find hope. You have no bit of hope accomplishing a healthy witness and a healthy heart and personal holiness if you're not looking at that. He's like, otherwise I've wasted my time writing this letter out. If you think this is about you and behavior modification and morality, man, you've missed the boat. The point of this is, are you standing in him so we've just preached this whole letter tied it up today and maybe today you are still self-reliant so you're attempting to handle life and suffering and your witness by yourself you have no desire for God outside these walls you simply do church and you wonder why you're not growing why you're not changing why you're not transforming and peter says it's by humbling ourselves first Realizing that Jesus is great, we are not. That Jesus is sinless and we are sinful. That Jesus is righteous, we're really unrighteous. And that's when you start to feel the weight of Jesus. And that's where transformation begins to take place. Don't get the the cart ahead of the horse. Now why is this so huge? This is so huge because we've read this letter and some of you are overtaken. Some of you wonder why strongholds are not broken. I would argue it's because you're not standing firm in it. And by that I mean you're standing still. That word is active, not passive. There's no pursuit. There's no engagement. You're wondering why the smallest amount of rejection and suffering for Jesus sends you into a place that makes you want to bail on him. Maybe because you're not engaging with Jesus. You're engaging with just your ability to withstand suffering or rejection. That's not enough, friends. At the end of the day, if someone mocks you or makes fun of you or ridicules you, if it's still at the end of the day about your name and not Jesus' name, it'll close the doors on your soul. So listen, this is why my primary question to you will never be, are you good people? Because Jesus doesn't want good people and there are no good people he wants bad people who he makes into good people like his son so why my primary question you will never be do you give your money because he can't be bought he buys you this is why my primary question will not be this that all these actions my primary question will be are you pursuing are you engaging are you surrendering are you following are you standing firm In the gospel of grace. I hope that's what you hear. I hope that's what you think about because this is Peter's point and his encouragement to be in the world, not of the world. That's been his whole point in this letter. We're called to stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace given us in Christ. We have no helpful witness or hope of that if we stand in ourselves. We stand in his gospel and if we do, then there will be let's go and tell. And that's Matthew 28, right? Jesus comes up, says, Hey, all authority has been on heaven and earth has been given to me, so go, make disciples, ascend the hill. And as you come over the crest, don't forget there's a real enemy. And it's not humans, it's not human institutions, it's adversaries, it's the spiritual realm, it's a devil who prowls. Resist him firm in your faith, stand firm, not passive, but active. And that's 2 Peter. And I look forward to discussing that with you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we get to hear from you this morning. Thank you that you are a God that offers us yourself. Thank you that that is enough. Thank you that we can never hear enough of the saving work of Christ on our behalf. Thank you that it matters to our salvation. It matters to our perseverance. It matters to our fight with sin. It matters to our personal holiness. It matters to our work. It matters to our marriage and relationships and parenting and sacrifice and living and ultimately dying to be with you. So Father, I pray you'd strengthen us as a church in the gospel of grace that we would be a church that stands firm in this we be a church that loves you more than things, that loves you more than suffering, that loves you more than having a comfortable life? Would you do that? Would you help us to walk in such a way by which you transform us from one shade of glory to the next? Father, help us to be people that have a mindset on the spirit and not a mindset on the flesh. Help us to be reliant on you and only you and not ourselves for your glory, our joy, and your witness. In Jesus' name, amen.